May 12th. Today we do celebrate Mother's Day and we celebrate all the ways that um, our mothers and that women image our Creator to us. We acknowledge that for some it is a difficult day, but we still want to take this chance to give thanks for our mothers. So, would you uh, join me in prayer? And actually, I would like, if we were doing this in our building, we would have all the mothers stand for this, and it may seem really weird, but if our mothers who are at home would stand with family or friends gathered around them, even laying hands on them, we would appreciate it. Loving God, thank you for the women in our life, for our mothers, for those who've been like mothers to us. We are grateful for their tenderness when we were helpless or hurt. We're grateful for their encouragement and wisdom when we were unsure. We are grateful for their correction and perseverance so we would stay true. We're grateful for the way they guided us into your saving embrace. Too often we took their love and sacrifice for granted. Forgive us for this. Help us to live in such a way that our words and our actions bring honor to them and to you. Dear God, for many this day is full of joy and celebration, but for others it's an especially painful day. So pour out your healing, your consolation, and your peace on those who are grieving the loss of their mother or the loss of their child, on families separated by distance or disagreement, on families plagued by disappointment, abandonment, addiction, or abuse. God of all compassion, shelter us all beneath your outstretched arms. Bring your healing, consolation, and peace to women whose desire to be a mother has not been fulfilled, to mothers and guardians who are exhausted as they labor to balance work and raising children, to mothers and guardians who are overwhelmed as they struggle to bring up children in the midst of poverty, disease like this virus, or war. The need is deep. Come quickly, for our hope is in you. Amen. And now, as we would do if we were gathered together, um, I would like all of the women to stand, including little women, young women, women of all ages, because we are thankful for all women today, because again, you all image our Creator to us. And so, let me pray for all of you. Gracious God, thank you for every woman and girl that's here online with us today and for every one that we have brought with us in our hearts. Reveal your purpose and plan for their life. Bless them and protect them. Deepen their love and trust of you. Strengthen them, empower them, and anoint them with your Holy Spirit, that their faith, influence, and achievement would bring you honor and glory, that you would be famous through them. Receive our thanks and praise again for these women and these women in the making, for they are precious to us and they are precious to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And everybody said amen. And you may now be seated if that's what you were doing before. The last few weeks I've been encouraging us to take a look at our emotions and to name them and to take them in God, placing our full and final trust in Him. I've also challenged us um, to take our emotional reactions in the midst of the crucible, the pressure, 
the refiner's fire that we find ourselves in and to um, allow God to show us things about ourselves through those emotions so that we can uh, work with him to be formed more into the image of Jesus. So emotions have been kind of one of the the main topic the last couple of weeks. And I've been thinking a lot these weeks. I've personally not been struggling with fear, anxiety in this. Um, and that's not a medal of honor for me. That's, um, that's to display God's glory and his ongoing goodness and training in my life, a story that I will tell at some point in the future. Um, but not been struggling with fear and anxiety, but I had this just general sense of something inside something that has been a little bit hard to name um, not super strong but just something that's there quite a lot and I've been coming to the realization that it's a combination of a couple things one I think it's a deep missing of community and being with others that I love and care about in a meaningful way even handshakes pats on the backs hugs Definitely missing the body, and I can't wait till we can get back together because uh, we were created to be together. And trust me, at some point when we get back, we're going to have a big celebration. Um, Arrowhead has never seen a uh, tailgate party like we're going to have. But that's also been, I think, mixed. That missing of community has been mixed with a large dose of confusion and uncertainty from living and leading and ministering and pastoring in this new reality, a new reality where we spend four hours on Monday making a decision and then that's overturned by new information on Tuesday. Um, trust me, seminary did not provide a course called Pandemic 101. It didn't have a course on Televangelism 101, the one that I really wish that they would have had. So like you, I've had no training in any of this. So this week, I want to talk about this topic of confusion and uncertainty, and I want to ask this question. How do we, as children of the great King and as followers of Jesus, live with love, joy, and peace, with faith and hope in the midst of uncertainty, this great not knowing that we find ourselves in the midst of? Uncertainty and confusion are tied inextricably with loss. The loss of certainty, the loss of the known, the loss of the normal, the loss of the status quo. We've all lost things in this, some of us more than others, some of us greater things than others. And loss always brings with it confusion and uncertainty, and grief accompanies loss. So again, it's okay to feel those things. We should feel those things. If you have red blood, human blood pulsing through your veins, then you will feel those things. That's all right. Um, but just this idea of confusion and uncertainty has just been on my mind a lot, especially since a week and a half ago when I had a conversation with uh, Ben Coltrane. And as we were talking about this topic of ongoing confusion and uncertainty, he reminded me that that's what cross-cultural missionaries go through and experience as they enter a future a foreign culture, as they enter a foreign culture, um, but kind of on steroids. Um, and he and Sarah know they've experienced uh, this firsthand. All the cultural cues you're used to, they're gone. You're never certain of the right way to act, of the right way to do something, of the right thing to say. Um, if you're 
in a place where you have to learn a new language, it ramps all of that up even more. I remember when my brother, who lived in Taiwan for what I think was about five years, when he told me that how that ongoing sense of really never knowing what's going on around you or the right thing to say or do, that over time that just wore him down. Um, ben has written about this. He, he put together a little, I don't know, essay article, something that uh, I asked him to put into words, and we have it online. If you'll get in the online section of our church website under pastor's resources or sermon resources, you will find that. I really encourage you to print it off and to read it. It is excellent. But all this is to say that I think that that overall feeling that many of us have in our bodies, I think it stems from confusion and uncertainty. Now, some have a higher tolerance for uncertainty than others. And likewise, some of us struggle with uncertainty more than others. Especially those with the, the deep idol of control. We talked about that last fall. And trust me, I know of what I speak when I speak about that deep idol of control. I have been on a multi-year journey with God seeking freedom from that need to control. Now, we all struggle with control to one degree or another, every one of us. It's part of the fall, and I think it's part of our unwillingness to live within the limits of being a creature rather than being the creator. And that's another sermon topic in the future. But for those who struggle with a deep light of control, it just really heightens all of this. So let me read from what we had last semester in the idolatry series, series as a, a definition of control idolatry. For in control idolatry, ultimately what I'm seeking in life is situational perfection, stability, freedom from uncertainty, complete order, and or absolute security. I am irritated. I am unhappy. I am frustrated. I'm unsatisfied. I feel unsettled. I get anxiety and fear. Um, I feel a lack of worth or value unless... I have absolute mastery over every area of my life and or I am able to gain control of the world around me and have complete security and safety. And as you know, none of us is ever going to get complete safety and security in this world or in the situation in which we find ourselves. So, and here's what I think with culture, with, as I've been thinking about control, is that our culture really ramps up the need for control in us. There's a lot of reasons for this, but one of them is from the influence of modernism and the myth of progress and the idea that that myth brought the belief that science could lead us into increasing levels of control of the random events of our lives. I wish I could explain more fully the other ways that our modern secular narrative has intensified our need for control, but I don't have time right now. Someone this week told me in relation to this topic of control, um, that there are two things that never change. God and change. And that's not good news for someone wrestling with the need for control in their lives. But change and uncertainty, it's the reality of life, and especially now. And here's the truth. There is so much in our lives that we can't control. Some researchers at Duke University have concluded the average person has only about 15% of the control of their life that they think they do. Now, I don't know how they came up with that number, but if Duke University researchers say it, researchers say it, it's got to be right, true, right? Um, but doesn't that totally make sense? I mean, think about it. 
of all the things in my life there that can be controlled, there is myself, there's those around me, and there's the situation around me. And the reality is I only have meaningful control over one of those, and that's myself. And I can't even do that well half the time. So I have two choices in the matter. If the reality is, is that most of life is out of my control, then I have two choices. One, I can try to ramp up my attempts at controlling my life, controlling those around me, and controlling the situation in which I find myself. And there are many who continually live their lives with this option, an ongoing but futile attempt to control things that are beyond our control. And if you've ever tried living that way, good luck with that, for your life will be full of stress and anxiety. I learned long ago that the more I tried to exert control, the worse the addiction for control became and the less peace I had in my life. If I'm seeking to follow Jesus and to display his way of life to those around me, then would we not all agree he is best shown by living a life of faith and hope, a life of love, joy, and peace? I know this from tons of experience. But I want to say this because I think it's important. In the spiritual life, control is incompatible with faith and hope. It is incompatible with love, joy, and peace. They don't go together. It's like oil and water. We're told in Hebrews 11:6 that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the need to control and reduce uncertainty is clearly incompatible with a life of faith. For the essence of faith is living in the midst of uncertainty, trusting a certain God. Furthermore, the need to control is incompatible with a life of hope. Whether it's a tight grasping for the control of things today or an unrelenting attempt to manipulate events in my life to bring about control over my future, it shows that I've lost sight of the fact that my hope is in God alone and is in the glorious future that He has promised me. What about peace, joy, and love? Rather than increasing my levels of peace, striving to have control in my life only leads to higher levels of fear and anxiety. Striving for control makes me more uptight and on edge. Rather than increasing my levels of joy, grasping for control in my life only leads to higher levels of disappointment and resulting sadness or anger. Because people will never behave how I want and situations will rarely turn out the way I want. And rather than increasing my levels of agape love, clutching and seeking to have control of my life only leads to higher levels of non-loving behavior, dominating others, manipulating others, having to have my way, being pushy, bullying people, controlling them, and in the process, stripping them of the dignity that comes from being, being created as free by God as free individuals by trying to limit their freedom and to control them, Stripping them of their dignity simply because of my need for situational stability and security. Parents, beware. This is so easy to do. So again, I have two choices in the matter. One, I can try to ramp up my attempts at controlling my life, controlling those around me, and controlling the situation I find myself in. But there's a second choice. A choice that comes from this realization from this question. As I heard somebody ask last week, 
What if control is one of the primary things that keeps me from living a life of faith and hope and of love, joy, and peace? Pretty powerful question. How about this? What if uncertainty is not the worst thing that can happen to me, but is perhaps the best thing that can happen to me? What if learning to live well in uncertainty with a loss of control is one of the best things that can happen in my spiritual life and in my being formed into the image of Jesus? Totally reframes everything, doesn't it? Very counterintuitive, which is how Jesus was. So my second choice then is this, based upon those realizations and those thoughts. It is, it, my second option is learning to live well in holy uncertainty. Holy uncertainty. As far as I can tell, the German theologian Johann Peter Lange, who lived in the 1800s, was the first to coin this phrase, holy uncertainty. It's the ability to live with a high tolerance of uncertainty, to be able to live well with the reality that most everything in life is not in my control. It's the ability to live with deep levels of faith and hope and love and joy and peace that are grounded in a real-world trust in the goodness and the greatness of God. It's to let go of the need for high levels of control, knowing that you have a good, good father who has your life in his hands. Psychologists call this holy uncertainty, uncertainty tolerance. Um, research, recent research shows that uncertainty tolerance, or the lack of it, has dramatic effects both on cognitive functioning and on mental health. One article I read said that a lack of uncertainty tolerance, or holy uncertainty, is behind many anxiety disorders. So my challenge this morning for us is to embrace uncertainty, specifically to embrace holy uncertainty. Marilyn Robinson wrote, there is something about certainty that makes Christianity unchristian. So I have cultivated uncertainty, which I consider a form of reverence before God. I love that. I've cultivated uncertainty, which I consider to be a form of reverence. That is holy uncertainty. I decided to do this topic a little over a week and a half ago. Um, kind of a couple of things. That conversation with Ben Coltrane came on the heels of some reading I was doing about the Lewis and Clark expedition. And how that once they had really gotten uh, to the headwaters of Missouri, that they were living in uncharted territory how they were living off the map, especially once they hit the Rocky Mountains, mountains which no American from the East Coast had ever seen before. And here's what Lewis wrote the day they first saw those Rocky Mountains and the uncharted territory in front of them. From this point, I beheld the Rocky Mountains for the first time. These points of the Rocky Mountains were covered with snow and the sun shone on it um, in such manner as to give me the most plain and satisfactory view. While I viewed these mountains, I felt a secret pleasure in finding myself so near the head of the heretofore conceived boundless Missouri. But when I reflected on the difficulties which this snowy barrier would most probably throw in my way to the Pacific, and the sufferings and hardships of myself and my party in them, in some measure it was counterbalanced. It counterbalanced the joy. That's a nice way of saying, well, this isn't going to go well. And I won't tell you what one of the other members of the Corps of Discovery wrote about it in his journal, his feelings about this new uncharted territory. So I began to ask myself, who in the Bible lived well? A life of evident faith, hope, love, joy, and peace. 
in the midst of great uncertainty, when they were living in an uncharted territory and off the map, so to speak. I had an idea then, and last Saturday, or Sunday, while on a walk, I asked Pat that question. And almost immediately she came up with the same person that had come to my mind, so that's what I'm going to go with. And that person is Daniel. Daniel most certainly found himself in the midst of great uncertainty. His homeland of Judea had been invaded and decimated by the Babylonian army. His home city, his capital city, had been virtually destroyed, with many of the people killed. He and a number of the Jewish people, especially young people of royal descent, were taken as exiles, as captives and exiles, back to Babylonia, some 1,700 miles from home. That would be like us walking from here to Seattle, Washington. He was violently uprooted from his home, and he was carted off to a place and a culture that was not his own. A place with a totally different language, different foods, different sights, different smells, different dress, different climate, different religion. And once they arrived, the Babylonians even changed their names, oftentimes one of the most important things to us. And he and his friends were likely only 14 or 15 years old when this happened. And he would live the next 70 years or so of his life in that place. 70 years of never fully fitting in. Life as a missionary. Never certain. Always confused to a degree. And if you know anything of his story, he was regularly confronted with difficult scenarios that were totally out of his control. In fact, most everything about his life was not in his control. 70 years of cultural confusion and daily uncertainty. And for Daniel... It was 70 years of embracing holy uncertainty and living in it well. So, here's my question to Daniel. You know, Daniel, how do you live in uncharted territory? How do you live when you find yourself suddenly off the map as we have been? As I've thought about that and reread Daniel and talked with Pat about him, three things have really stood out to me. Three things that were a vital part of Daniel's life. Three things that I think helped him to live well in the midst of uncertainty. Three things that cultivated with him holy uncertainty. A life that was marked by faith and hope. A life overflowing with love, joy, and peace. The first is this, that Daniel exhibited a deep trust in the sovereignty of God. That's a fancy way of saying that he had a settled sense that since God is in control, he doesn't have to be. And let me say that by sovereign, I don't mean that God pulls all the strings of every single event that happens in our lives, that he's the one who's in, uh, that he's like just causing every single event, even my own choices to happen. That's not what I'm talking about. When I use that word, what I am saying is that he's the one who's in overall control, that his good plans will ultimately come to fruition, and therefore I don't need to manipulate the people in the world around me. So as that settled sense of God's control takes deeper and deeper root in your life, as you learn to trust more and more that God's got your back, your life, and your soul, your ability to live in holy uncertainty grows. It's inevitable. Throughout the book of Daniel, we see God's sovereign control of the events of the exile. The book of Daniel is full of some of the Bible's strongest statements on God's sovereignty. In Daniel 4.25, Daniel says of God, the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth. 
I encourage you to read the book of Daniel and see God's sovereign hand for yourself. A strong belief in the sovereignty of God is the foundational building block to living a life of holy uncertainty, a life that is free from the need to control, a life marked by faith and hope, and a life overflowing with love, joy, and peace. Second, Daniel lived a life that was rooted in spiritual rhythms and practices, seeking God's presence through them. We talked about this during the month of February when we talked about the rhythm of Jesus' life, the disciples' rhythm, from solitude to community to ministry, the ongoing rhythm in my life of Christ, community, cause, back to Christ, to community, to cause, the regular engaging in the spiritual practice, practices that simply serve to bring me into the presence of God. That's the whole point, right? Where I can experience Him and enjoy Him and become more like Him. Jordan talked about this a few weeks ago. Practices like daily time in the Word, regular time talking to God about my real life in prayer, the practices of meditation and memorization, the practice of regularly and generously giving back to God only a small part of what He's given to me, the practice of slowing and enjoying, things like taking a weekly Sabbath or living in simplicity. I could go on, but I won't right now. Daniel's life is, here's what I want you to see, his life was rooted in these spiritual rhythms and practices. In Daniel chapter 6, if you were to look at that, we see um, him confronted by a problem when, when his colleagues, his Babylonian Persian colleagues, convinced Darius to make a law that people can only worship him, the king, and no other gods. And then they go and stake out his house and sit outside below his window because they know that Daniel's going to violate that. And we're told in Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, this is what it says. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group, and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him. And they tattled, basically. Um, and then you have... Uh, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. But did you hear verse 10? Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Daniel's life was marked not just by spiritual practices, but he lived his life in a rhythm of them. He got on his knees and prayed three times a day, regularly. This, this was the habit of a faithful Jew of his day. This three times a day prayer was called the Adama. David, Daniel followed this rhythm, as did David. In Psalm 55, 17, David said, Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out, and he hears my voice. Prayer was central to Daniel's life. In chapter 2, in the midst of a great crisis in his life, of a time of great confusion and uncertainty and lack of control, he asked his three friends to pray for him in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. The whole of chapter 9 contains one of Daniel's powerful written prayers. Um, prayer was central to his life and should be central to ours. And we're still working on a prayer initiative that we're going to start, I think, in the next week. But life here is so uncertain. My intent was this week, but some things shoved it off to the next week, so I apologize. But his mark, life was marked by a mark of prayer. Daniel was also a man who regularly feasted on the Word of God. We know this from the chapter 9 of Daniel. 
his great prayer found in that chapter was preceded by him spending time reading in the, the prophet Isaiah, Jeremiah. As you go through his prayer, you see him referencing the Torah as he wrestles with God in prayer in verse 13 of chapter 9. Again, Daniel was a man who regularly feasted on the Word of God. Let me give you one example of how a daily spiritual rhythm of spiritual practices works to develop in us holy uncertainty. This year with my quad, I'm reading through the New Testament. When this all hit at the end of March, there was one week in particular in our Bible reading that we were at the end of Mark and the beginning of Luke. And during that week's reading, we were in the resurrection of narratives of Mark and the birth narratives of Luke. And if I remember right, we read these words six times in that week's reading. Do not be afraid. Six times. Do not be afraid. We're told in Romans 9 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if you're not regularly in the word, allowing God's narrative to shape you more than the cultural narrative, especially now more than ever, you will not grow in holy uncertainty. Reading those words, do not be afraid, still carries um, through into my mind and my heart, you know, almost two months later. This living in regular communion with, with the Father through a rhythm of life that's marked by spiritual practices, it was modeled for us by Jesus. Remember Luke 4.16. There we are told that he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. I mentioned a few weeks ago in one of my Saturday videos the need for spiritual rhythm in our life. If I remember correctly, I referenced a book that Steve and I had recently finished reading called The Common Rule. Early in that book, he explained the fact that God created us to be creatures of habit. He also talked about habits not only give structure to our lives, but how they form our souls for good or for bad. In that book, the author said that you can either allow the culture to form habits in you that then form you into the image of the culture, or you can intentionally choose to live a life formed by spiritual habits of your choosing to be formed to be more like Jesus. So, my conclusion of this section is this, that a life rooted in spiritual rhythms and spiritual practices is another of the key building blocks to living a life of holy uncertainty a life that's free from the need to control, a life marked by faith and hope, a life overflowing with love and joy and peace. There's so much more I could say about Daniel and the things that helped him live a life of uncertainty, but I need to wrap this up. So third and finally, Daniel lived his life deeply and intimately connected to a close-knit community of spiritual friends. You can tell I'm needing to bring this to an end because each of these descriptors keeps getting longer and longer. I said this when I talked about community back in February, but I have found that living in deep community with other believers, it serves as a catalyst for my faith walk. I am convinced of this. You cannot walk a life of deep trust in the sovereignty of God. You cannot walk a life rooted in spiritual rhythms and practices alone. It's not possible. You must have a band of brothers or sisters who surround you in prayer and support and encouragement with fellowship. We are created by God to live in community. That's a large part of the reason this has been so hard. Our cultural driving narrative tells us that we are simply separate and autonomous individuals. But that's not the Bible's narrative. We need each other. And all through the book of Daniel, you find him and his friends fighting it out together, so to speak, in the alien culture that they found themselves where they had almost no control. 
from the first part of the story, the very beginning, we find those spiritual friends together. We meet them when we read chapter one. They're Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or perhaps better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or maybe even to some even better known as Rack, Shack, and Binny, if you're a VeggieTales fan. And in Daniel 3.25, we've seen them even joined by another friend, one who walks with them in the burning fire, one who looks like a son of the gods, according to the king, the pre-incarnate Jesus himself, our everlasting Savior, teacher, Lord, and friend, our eternal companion. Let me give you an example of how living a life deeply and intimately connected to a close-knit community of spiritual friends works to develop in us holy uncertainty. So back to my quad. Since the time of us reading those words six times in that week, do not be afraid. And we all noticed it. We are weakly encouraging each other in various ways to not walk in fear. We haven't used the words, but in doing that, we are prodding each other into more and more into living in holy uncertainty. Remember, in February, I talked about the difference between the giant sequoias and the majestic redwoods of California. The sequoias standing grand, all alone, um, with a shallow root system, easily susceptible to high winds. Then the redwoods, who group in huge clumps, their massive roots intertwined, right on the coast of California, where they can survive the very high coastal winds. We are created to be redwoods. That's why over the course of these last months, I have continued to meet weekly with Steve Lowen and my quad, always in appropriately social distancing, but I've continued to meet with them because I need it and you need it. A life deeply and intimately connected to a close-knit community of spiritual friends is the last key building block to, a, to living a life in holy uncertainty, a life that's free from the need to control, a life that's marked by faith and hope, a life overflowing with love and joy and peace. A deep trust in the sovereignty of God. A life rooted in spiritual rhythms and spiritual practices to experience the presence of God. And a life deeply and intimately connected to a close-knit community of spiritual friends. These three things will help you to learn to give up control of your life and to live into holy uncertainty. Not only that, these three things will be good companions with a long life lived well, walking with God. And here's how I know. One of the most famous stories in the book of Daniel, perhaps the culminating event of his life, occurred during the reign of Darius the Persian. It was under Darius that the Jews began to return to Jerusalem at the end of their 70-year exile. That meant that Daniel lived in Babylon for 70 years when he stood up to Darius and was thrown into the lion's den. In a lot of the pictures of I, that I've seen, and even in my own mind, before this week, to me, he was a young man. He, he was thrown in there as the young man first taken into exile. But in reality, when he was thrown into the lion's den, Daniel was likely in his mid-80s. Can you believe that? A life lived well. I've said this a hundred times, and I will keep saying it. We live in an age of high anxiety. And this virus has only exacerbated that anxiety. Our culture, our community, our neighbors, our friends, our family, 
especially our children, need a non-anxious presence in their lives. In an age and culture that's instilled in us a high need for control, we need people who follow in the way of Jesus by demonstrating a high tolerance for uncertainty, by embodying the ability to live in a deeply and profoundly, profoundly freeing sense of holy uncertainty. So, as we begin to move into a time of transition these next few months, a time that I can assure you will be marked by on an ongoing sense of uncertainty, let us, as a community, let us walk this journey of, together of learning to live a life of holy uncertainty. Let us together work to relinquish our need to control. And let us live a life marked by faith and hope and a life that is overflowing with love and joy and peace. Let us walk together in a deep trust in the sovereignty of God. Let us live together a life, lives that are rooted in spiritual rhythms and practices, seeking His presence. And let us do that together, together, deeply and intimately connected to a close-knit community of spiritual friends. May we be known as people who walk freely in holy uncertainty. I'd like to close with a sojourning prayer written by Richard Foster while living in a foreign culture. It seems an apt prayer for us as we live in a time of uncertainty, living off the map, living in uncharted territory. <coughs> and as I pray it for us, um, hear it in the context of the place in which we find ourselves. So would you pray with me? Oh Lord, my Lord, I feel like a stranger in a strange land. Absent are all the subtleties of custom and language and sight and smell and taste which would normally give me my bearings. Jesus, ever-living teacher, use my out-of-placeness to remind me again of my alien status in this world. I belong to another kingdom and live out of another reality. May I always be ultimately concerned to learn the nuances of this eternal reality so that when it becomes my permanent residence, I will not find it strange in the least. In the name of him who entered a foreign land, so that all who will come, who will, might come home to that for which they were created. Amen. And to all that, God's people said, Amen. <clears throat>